www.3cr.org.au. This is Marissa and I'll be taking you through until five o'clock this evening. First up on the show, we'll be speaking with Lara Watson, who is the current ACTU Indigenous Officer and also coordinates FN, FNWA, and I'll explain what that, that's about later. Lara is a Biddy Gubba woman from Central West Queensland, and she's a fantastic organiser who goes around the country building relationships and empowering CDP workers with skills. CDP workers have given her permission to tell their stories. What inspired me to actually do this interview, and I'll be speaking with Lara shortly, is that I saw an excellent article in the Freedom Socialist Organiser by Alison Thorne. And Alison, I believe, interviewed Lara and spoke with her about stolen wages. And I've also done a lot of research about the historical, what, what, what's happened historically in regards to Aboriginal people. And to use an example, and I'm sure we can talk about this with Lara in a sec, on the 23rd of August 1966, Vincent Lignari led 200 people, employees of the Wave Hill Station and their families in a walk-off. And Aboriginal people have been ripped off um, for many, many years. And listeners may ask, well, what has that got to do with incarceration? What's that got to do with um, doing time? Aboriginal people are doing time as we speak. They are prisoners in their own land and they are refugees in their own land. And I'll be speaking with Lara um, shortly about her union work and looking at what's happening with stolen wages and looking at the, the gross violations of human rights and welfare. The fact is now that um, the intervention has not stopped, that... Aboriginal people are now under welfare and not the social, like they're under the Social Security Act, not the fair trade. So um, the, especially from remote communities, they're not getting a fair go. After that, we'll be speaking with Praba, who is from the Trotsky platform and he's an activist. And we'll be speaking to him about the, the disgusting fascism that is... Uh, um, running our land at the moment, what's happening with fascism, how can we unite to stop it? And we'll be using the Christchurch attacks uh, to, to look at that situation. If people are expecting that I'm going to go into gory details about uh, the people that were killed, think again, I'm not going to be doing that. We're going to be using an, that as an example and speaking about how we can build a united front to confront fascism. Hello, Lara. Welcome to the program. And you're back with the Doing Time show. Hello, Lara. Welcome to the program. Hello. How are you? Good, thank you. I'm sorry that you got cut off there. We had some technical difficulties, but I hope you heard my introduction. Um, no, I didn't because I got cut off, but yeah. thank you anyway. Yeah, no, I thought you might have heard a bit of it. But that's okay. Look, it's it's all good. Um, I was just saying in my intro, um, this is Marissa from the Doing Time Show and um, we'll be doing an interview with Stolen Wages. We've started already. But I just wanted to, to tell you that during my intro, I talked about the fact that Aboriginal people have been incarcerated, are incarcerated in their own land. Because listeners may say, well, what have stolen wages got to do with prisons? And that's true, isn't it, Lara? They are incarcerated oh, here. Yeah. So could you start off just by saying what your title is and what land you're from and, and talk a little bit about the work you're doing? Certainly. Um so I'm a very Gubba woman from Central West Queensland and I'm currently the Indigenous Officer at the Australian Council of Trade Unions. Uh, and we've, um, the work that I'm doing now is around the Community Development Program through First Nation Workers Alliance. Um, again, you know, you can put this in the category of stolen wages. We have Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander workers in remote communities that are being forced onto this punitive and racist program and they're in jobs that we would consider wage jobs anywhere else in the country and they're doing this work for the equivalent of a new start payment. They're not covered by occupational health and safety. They get, don't get superannuation. Um, so there are really appalling situations 
particularly around health and safety. Um, and if they don't do the activity, then they're threatened uh, with breaches for up to eight weeks. So CDP... That's work I'm doing now. <laughs> that's good. That's, that's good. And so CDP was basically introduced by the Coalition Minister for Aboriginal Affairs on the 1st of July 2015? Yeah, so this was... Um, the coalition's revamp to the Community Development and Employment Program, which was in place under a Labor government. And basically, they've just ripped out the employment section of CDEP, um, and then they've opened it up to private enterprise as well, which has never been done in the history of any training or employment program in remote communities. Um, so we've got, you know, potential for new jobs in communities from private enterprise, but instead of them being filled as a wage job, they're being filled by CDP workers. But the First Nations people from remote communities, why aren't they being encouraged to have cooperatives and self-determination rather than all this work for the dole stuff? They should be getting jobs. No wonder people, you know, Aboriginal people are going to prison and stats are rising. Absolutely. And we get that from communities all the time when we're going around. You know, they've kind of lost this pride and dignity in in and around employment because everyone deserves the dignity of work and they've been denied this. And what we're seeing is, you know, people are just moving off a country because they don't want to be under this program and they're living homelessly in regional towns as opposed to living and working on country. You know, we're over on Groot Island and we had a gentleman there who was a fully qualified builder. So he'd done his apprenticeship in the late 70s, um, but he couldn't get a job on the island at all. And we took a drive around and we counted over 30 fly-in, fly-out workers, non-Indigenous, working on new builds and extensions in that community, yet he couldn't get a job. That's disgusting, really. Absolutely. You know, and we hear one of the regular causes of breaches and why people are not getting paid for eight weeks is because of sorry business. So if they're going out on sorry business or sorry care, that's not considered a viable excuse for not participating. We even had a woman that thought she was doing the right thing. She went into her job service provider. She lost her husband on the weekend. She was devastated, just letting them know she couldn't do CDP. She had sorry business to attend to, and she was breached for eight weeks. Well, that's not really taking, you know, sorry business into consideration, is it? The Aboriginal No, law. and they don't. They don't think about, um, you know... The remoteness either, the isolation within some communities. Um, We had a gentleman that had severe mental health issues and the activities were causing him harm. Um, And he needed to get a certificate from a Centrelink approved doctor and it took him three days travel to be able to get that documentation. But when he got back to the community, the documentation wasn't the right documentation and he was breached for eight weeks. Um, so we're hearing some really horrifying stories. We've got um, a young fella over in Western Australia. So he had no shoes on, shorts, no gloves or eyewear, and he was asked to operate a drop fall. So when he asked for gloves, boots and glasses, the job service provider told him they weren't obligated to provide that. Um, and he had refused to do the activity, and when he refused, he was then threatened with a breach of eight weeks. And this same lad, you know, he's there doing his CDP. There was a couple of activities that he didn't do for sorry business. Six months later, he gets a letter from Centrelink that had six months' worth of breaches on it, and they were basically taking that whole sum out of his payment. Um so then again, you know, he's at least a month without any money coming in whatsoever. The thing that really is quite appalling about this whole situation, Lara, is that, correct me if I'm wrong here, 
just want to make it clear to listeners that the this is this is welfare under the Social Security Act, yes. and so it's not fair trade. And the Aboriginal not. people in remote communities, they're the ones that suffer the most. Basically, is, isn't that right? Yeah, that. You know, they're our most vulnerable communities. Um, there's very limited job opportunities. So to see what jobs are available being filled by CDP is like twofold. It's hitting the community twice. And they aren't considered workers. So they fit under the social security legislation, not under any industrial stream. So because of that, they don't actually have access to industrial tools like Fair Work Australia or trade unions um, because the government's wording with they do activities, not jobs. They're participants, not workers. And fitting under that social security stream just is the way they're covering their own asses, but they've actually excluded a whole group of workers, like there's 35,000 workers under CDP at any one time, and 33,000 of those are Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Yeah, see, so according to, I mean, I really agree with this particular quote from Alison's article here, um, which is from the Freedom Socialist Organiser, which you were interviewed for. Um, yeah. And it's interesting that she says that um, Aboriginal workers in remote communities are in a worse situation than the Gurindjeri in 1966. Yes, they are. So we've done a bit of a comparison um, and you look at the Gurindji when they first walked off around wages and conditions. Yeah. Um, they wanted equal payment as their non-Indigenous workers next to them. And when we look back at that and look at now, when you do the comparison, our guys in remote communities are being paid less. Yeah, see? So it's 1788 all over again because you've, you've, you've got the First Nations people who are being driven off country. Yep. It's, it's cheap labour. And at least prior to, to this program, it was, like they weren't forced into it, were they? To work, and it was more culturally no, appropriate. Sorry. Yeah. Um, prior prior to the current program, um, it was around training. So you know, we had workers that said, "Look, I really want to do this kind of work." So there was the capacity training, and then lead to employment, um, and they were getting paid a minimum wage. They had occupational health and safety coverage, and they were getting paid superannuation. So it was like um, employment, but it was upskilling. Now it's none of that. And it's not cheap labour. I actually would call it slave labour because when you've got private enterprise, when they access a CDP worker, if they have that CDP worker for 26 weeks, they get an incentive payment of $7,500, which is more than what, CDP workers are getting. So it's a bit of a cash cow for private companies to be able to access CDP workers, but also for job service providers to roll out CDP. That's exactly right. I mean, while Kevin Rudd's apology to the stolen generation was, was great, I mean, there's been no compensation that was paid mm. as a result of the wages, yeah. um, despite it bring, being a recommendation of the Bringing Them Home report. Yeah. You know, what's what's the good of words if it's not followed up by action? Um, and, you know, a banner sticks in my head that's quite iconic around the Rudd apology is, you know, saying sorry means you never do it again. Yet we seem to have this history of continual oppressive policies through government but they're just called something else each time. So that cycle really needs to stop and there needs to be real meaningful consultation with remote communities um, and looking at job investment um, in communities so people can live on country, work on country 
and have the, the dignity of work. Is that something that you're working on at the moment, Lara, in the unions? Yes, yeah. So um, First National Workers Alliance and the ACTU, we've been lobbying um, all political parties quite intensively over the last two years. Uh, we have got commitment from both Greens and the Australian Labor Party around abolishing CDP. But we got um, through the work with Malandiri McCarthy, uh, Linda Burney and Pat Dodson, uh, we were able to get a bit more um, of a commitment from Labor, which they announced in December at their national conference. So basically what they've committed to doing is as soon as they form government, they will stop the punitive measures around CDP. But they asked for at least a 12-month transition period because what they would like to do is set up the old ATSIC boundaries and be able to have those conversations with communities on what they would like delivered in a training and employment program and looking at investing into more job opportunities um, on country. So we've got that commitment um, and you know that's half the battle won. Um, that's not a complete victory yet because if we do see a change of government and Labor are the new, new party in power, the next half of our campaign is to make sure that they are true to their word and they follow through on the commitment and make sure that they do go through that consultation process because communities do have the right to self-determination and they know what's best for their community. And not any one community is the same either. You know, we've seen some really amazing incentives that have come off the back of remote communities tackling a variety of issues. So if we can have government actually acknowledge that and invest in what is already happening um, and let communities take control of that and to build an economic base, you know, that that's going to break the cycle um, that governments just seem to keep repeating. And what would you advise to um, people in prison? Um that, that's a tough one. Um, I haven't done a lot of work with the prison system. No, no, that's okay. You yeah, don't need but to. I know, yeah, you know, like, this is the thing. There's no opportunities. There's no um, unions in either community. in prison. Yeah, no. Um, you know, I know that prisoners, if they have a sentence, I believe, I hope I don't get this the no, wrong way. No, 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 way, that's right. Yeah, they, under, yeah go on. Under three years, they can still vote, but yes. over three, they can't. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. And also, um, um, they work, they, they, they've got, they're doing some work, but they're being paid a pittance in there. Yeah. Um, I believe NT is the only state that actually pays an actual wage to prisoners. Yep. But again, you know, we're, we're looking, it seems to be the flavour for governments is just finding any opportunity to put any people into slave labour. I mean, you look at um, the $4 internships that are happening. You work for the doll, both in Job Active and CDP. We just seem to be having to work two and three jobs to be able to put food on the table. And we've lost, you know, the, the Aussie fair go where you could actually go to work and earn enough to put a roof over your head, food on your table and send your kids to school. Like, we need to actually band together as one, as workers. We're the majority um, and actually hold governments to account and change the rules. We need legislative change that actually supports workers. Um, because we're the ones that actually spend money and we're the ones that actually build the economy. None of this big business trickle-down economics. We know it doesn't work. That's exactly right. And, you know, historically Aboriginal people have pe been penalised for many years and, and yep. 
you know, I'm sure that there are still wages owed to them um, from from the time of the missions. Oh, absolutely. Uh, you've got Queensland and New South Wales are the only two states that have actually gone through the reparations process. So I was involved with Queensland um, when we looked at uh, stolen wages and government um, making payment of reparations. But reparations isn't paying back the money that was stolen either. You know, reparations is just acknowledgement that your money was stolen and yeah. we're, you know, we're sorry about that. Absolutely. But claimants are only receiving about 1% of their wage that was stolen. Um, and I know John Bottoms in Cairns is actually starting a class at, or has started a class action for stolen wages claimants. But the saddest thing of all of it, whether it be reparations by government or whether it be a class action suit, they take so long that our claimants are dying before they actually get payment. Oh, yeah. I'm not surprised. I'm not yeah. surprised, Lara. So in conclusion, because um, we're running out of time now, it's really important, isn't it, to, to really um, have community control, isn't it, of Indigenous communities? Absolutely. They're the, the architects of their own life. You know, if you, any of us, if we had our independence and our self-determination taken away from us, we'd be angry too, <laughs> you know? Hello. Um, but yeah. it, <laughs> it seems it's okay for generation after generation after generation of First Nations people, it seems to be okay to do that. But it's not. It's not okay. It's not um, okay. People have got... No. And the border community, um, I don't know if they actually realise our remote First Nations communities are always the guinea pigs. And I'll use the intervention as an example with the basic card. So no one gave an uproar more broadly about this basics card. And now we're actually seeing it rolled out in mainstream. You know, we're also seeing versions of CDP being rolled out. So if people don't get up and be loud and fight against the injustices in our remote communities, you can be sure that those programs will be knocking on their door next. Absolutely. An injury to one is an injury to all. Absolutely. Lara, is there a website that people can look at? Yes. So we've got... um, a Facebook and a website, so it's firstnationworkersalliance.org.au um, and FNWA is the Facebook and got plenty of information on there. We've got contacts if you want to send us um, any email, if you want more information and I can post that out to you um, or give you a call, particularly if you want to get involved in our campaign. So we have a couple of target seats that uh, we are participating in. Um, so, yeah. Great. Lara, thank you so much for, for coming onto the program. It was um, great chatting with you. And Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's, it's let's um, uphold sovereignty. Absolutely, yes. Thanks so much. Thank you. Bye. And that was Lara... Um, Lara um, Watson speaking about speaking about stolen wages and the fact that Aboriginal people are imprisoned in their own land. I'm just going to go um, into an announcement and then we'll speak with um, with Preba. In December 2017, Tanya Day, proud Yorta Yorta woman and much loved member of the Aboriginal community was travelling by train to Melbourne. When V-Line staff found her asleep, they called Castlemaine Police and she was removed from the train and charged with public drunkenness. Tanya died 17 days later as a result of head injuries sustained while in custody. This would never have happened had the recommendations of the 2001 Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody been implemented. Tanya Day's family is calling for the crime of public drunkenness to be abolished and for the implementation of genuine community health alternatives to incarceration.
Please add your support by signing the petition at 3CR Reception, 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy, or online by entering Tanya Day Petition into your browser. And you're back with the Doing Time show and we're going to be speaking now with uh, Preba and he's from the Trotsky platform. He's also an activist. We're going to be speaking, as I said in my intro, about how we can unite against fascism. Um, A white supremacist uh, in March shot a whole lot of um, Muslims in a mosque. And as I said at the beginning, it's not about it's not about talking about the gory details the way a lot of mainstream media are doing. It's more about looking at that case exam- example and having a look at how we can best unite against fascism. Hello, Preba. Welcome to the program. Oh, hi, Marissa. Good to speak to you. You too. You're on air. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> and this is 3CR Community Radio and you're listening to the Doing Time show. So, Preba... I'm wondering if you could just introduce yourself. Um, I know you and I met about seven years ago in Sydney when I was rec- uh, recording interviews for the trial of um, the relatives of TJ Hickey. Yes, that's right, yeah. So could you talk a little bit about yourself and talk about some of the work um, you're doing at the moment? Oh, okay. Well, I guess I'm one of many uh, many others active in the struggle against racism and fascism and that's many people from many different groups. Um, and I would say that this struggle is, bec- is getting more and more urgent because uh, the number of far-right attacks is growing in Australia and the number of racist attacks carried out by people who even don't identify with the far-right is growing. So, so this is happening in Australia, but it's also happening around the world. So... Yeah. We're seeing far-right races come into uh, government in the U.S. with Trump and Bolsonaro in Brazil, and they're part of governments in Italy, Austria, and Switzerland. But even more concerning is what's happening on the street. So there's more racist murders, there's more racist bashings, and uh, people being abused on the street. So what happened in Christchurch was... Not a surprise, unfortunately. It's, it's, there's been more attacks on the streets in Australia. There's been Muslim women who've had their headscarf ripped up, spat on, in their face, um, being attacked on public transport. In 2016, there was two racist white supremacist murders, actually. Um, the first one was the running over of... Aboriginal child uh, Elijah Doty by a racist following like a um, a Facebook uh, a Facebook lynch mob, <laughs> you could say, uh, where racists in the town of Kalgoorlie were egging each other on, and then this one guy goes and runs over Elijah while he's riding a, a bike, a dirt yeah. bike. Yeah. And then two months later an Indian bus driver in Brisbane driving a, a public bus. Um, he's murdered by a right-wing conspiracy nutter. So uh, the driver's name is Manmeet Alisha, and he was driving his bus, and this passenger gets on and throws a fireball at him. Yeah. Um, so th- there's that unfortunate reality, and... The number of these attacks is growing, and it was, I guess, a matter of time before you saw an attack on the scale of what happened in Christchurch. It's, it's, you know, it's appalling what happened in Christchurch. And yeah. in case listeners don't know, because yeah. I've actually spoken to quite a few people who didn't even know there was a shooting in New Zealand. Oh, really? A oh. lot of people had no idea wow. that it had taken place. Wow. <laughs> um, and I'd spoken to, to quite a few people outside this radio station, just your, your normal, you know, yeah, person yeah. in the street. So just in case people don't know, um, y- you know, it was in a mosque, wasn't it? There were, and yeah. it was a white supremacist yeah. that, that shot all those Muslims, wasn't it? Yeah, that's right. A white supremacist from Australia. <laughs> yeah. From Australia. How embarrassing. 
Yeah. So, and well, more than how embarrassing. <laughs> I'm being slightly sarcastic yeah. here. But <laughs> it's just my, my humour, don't worry. But, you know, it's interesting what you've... You, which statement is this from? You've got it. You've sent me a statement here, Prebar. Is that yeah. from from um, an, a, a group? Yeah, that's from. I think the one I sent you is from our group. Yeah, Trotsky's platform. Trotsky, yeah. yeah, it's an excellent statement. May I quote from for you? And sure. It says here for two hundred and fifty years, British then U.S. control in the South Pacific. From early colonialism to global imperialist rule, capitalist powers have used white supremacy to justify their invasions, land theft, and plunder. Yes. Um, yeah, yeah. And it's, yeah, so this country was the modern Australia since 1788, was founded on the genocide and theft of Aboriginal people, and this wrong has not been undone. And that's the original basis for the extreme racism in Australia. Um, and the second basis is simply the capitalist system, which happens, which so in every capitalist country in the world, we're seeing growing racism because the system is unable to provide uh, permanent secure jobs for people. It's not able to provide proper infrastructure and those running it seek a scapegoat. They don't want to say it's the system to blame or they don't want to see say it's the rich business owners who profit from the system are to blame. So it's natural that they would look for scapegoats. So they blame immigrants, minorities, indigenous peoples, and so on. And that, that mainstream racism, of course, incites extreme racists. And, and the third reason why Australia is extremely racist is because of geography. So you've got history, the system, and geography. And the geography is Australia is an imperialist country. That is a country where the rulers not only exploit the workers at home, but they exploit the peoples of the South Pacific, um, of neighbouring countries. But it's, an, but it's one where it is the only imperialist country of note, New Zealand's very small, um, in the whole region. So in Europe, you've got different imperialist countries, Germany, France, Italy, next to each other, and the countries they, they exploit in Africa and Asia and the Middle East and Latin America are further away. In the US, you've got a big country, and you've got neighbouring Canada, and then you've got the countries it exploits. But Australia, you have hundreds of millions of the victims of imperialism, and you've got this imperialist enclave that happens to be white and where the victims are darkest. So... You have, you have this fear um, among people that is engendered by the rulers that their standard of living will be brought down to that of the level of the neighbours of Australia, to, to that of the peoples of the South Pacific and the peoples of Asia. You know, I really love the way you explain that, Preba, because, yeah. look, I could talk to, to you guys for ages. You're excellent writers. I've noticed Thanks. that people from the Trotsky platform are excellent writers. Socialists too, believe me. It's uh, <laughs> so, but um, I I think, and that's because um, you know your history, okay, and it's really important to you know to have an alternative to capitalism, yeah. and I think what you've said is leading me on to my next point, and I want yeah. I want to see if you can comment on this. Yeah. So you're saying that there's fear, and you're saying yeah. that um, basically. People are worried that the economy is going to go down yes. to that standard of the other countries. Now, the Nazis and the fascists are taking advantage of that, aren't they? They're actually using that fear as a way to recruit, correct? That's definitely right, yeah. So they, they're preying on that insecurity. Um, the fact that so many people, especially the young people, don't have secure jobs. I think more than half of young people are either unemployed or working less hours than they want to yeah. or working in casual jobs or in the gig economy or on jobs on limited fixed-term contracts like three-month contracts or six-month contracts. So you're very lucky if you're, you're a young person under 30 and you've actually got a a secure permanent job. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And yeah. we we need permanency 
for that. Yeah. And, um, yeah. Indeed, um, there is open um, organisation of fascist organising in Australia at the moment, and it's increased, hasn't it? Why is that? Yeah. So it's it's yeah it's part of this um, phenomena that is happening around the world, and it's happening in Australia. So the far right is growing because capitalism is less and less able to provide permanent secure jobs and economic security. And so the rulers look for scapegoats and the far right, um, they profit from that. So part of the problem, of course, is that the alternative to capitalism, which should be coming from our unions and the left, isn't strong enough. And so... You know, the crisis of capitalism could lead to the workers' movement becoming more powerful and challenging it. But thus far, this has not happened. Why? And, Why is that? Uh, well, one of the problems is, I would say, if I was to define the two main problems in the workers' movement, um, they're illusions of change through parliament and economic nationalism. <laughs> so illusions of change through parliament yeah. is the belief that you know, in these, that we just have to wait for the next election, get the Liberals out, and either Labour or the Greens will fix things. But unfortunately, history has proven that's not going to be the case. And um, I myself and my group, you know, we'll, we'll be saying vote informal, right? Uh, and the oh, more we, okay. we, we think the more people who, who understand that the change is going to come through their own actions of the working class and through mass struggle, and not at all through parliament, the better we are to resist the attacks of whichever government gets elected. So you're saying don't... So trot, how do you pronounce it? Trotsky? What is, what is this Trotsky platform, thing? Yeah. What is it? Bigger pun? What is Trotsky? Oh, uh, well, <laughs> <laughs> what is it, but? Well, uh, Trotsky was the co-leader of the Russian Revolution. Okay. All right, yeah. so so you got you you your group is not in parliament. No, no, no. And right. Yeah, and we we think one of the the things is that has hampered the the, the movement, the resistance. So instead of mass struggle and strikes yeah. and mass action, uh, our side, which would call the working class and the downtrodden, are looking to parliament and yes. change through the institutions of the current system. That's through the parliament, through the courts, through government agencies. And it's not working. And because it's not working, oh, our side's not providing a strong alternative. And, and so the disenchantment is going to the side of the far right. Now, we appeal to different constituencies, mind you, but sure. still. Um, and the second problem is in the fight, against job slashing, our side, um, our current union leaders who are pro-LP, um, they're not mobilising the power of the unions to say to stop job cuts. Like, we should, whenever companies slash jobs, and I'll give you an example. Um, in late 2017, the National Australia Bank announced a profit of $6.6 billion. It's a massive profit. And in that very same announcement... Yeah. The CEO said, look, yeah. we're going to cut 6,000 jobs because we want to make more profit, right? <laughs> so, so workers are being sacked in the drive for more profit. Now, right. the unions should be saying, no, you uh -huh. wear lesser profit. You keep those workers and you, share, big shareholders and, and big executives, you delay purchasing your fifth Ferrari or your 12th holiday home. You, you know, you don't buy your second private jet. You know, you wear a low I see profit. what you're saying. Yeah. yeah. So basically, in, go on. Go on. Yeah. Instead of that, um, the strategy being put forward is always economic nationalism. So it's like, guess workers are taking jobs or it's too much imports to Australia. Buy Australian. Keep out foreign steel exports. Now, that... That strategy doesn't actually save jobs because if you say keep out foreign imports, the countries overseas will also say keep out Australian exports. And then 
uh, imports from Australia, and then no one benefits. It just happens that the masses are divided. But that economic nationalism, it's not working. But it's also inciting racism, because although protectionism isn't racism, it breeds it. It and Indeed, in fact, it does. Yep. Yeah. It, it does breed it, and, and in fact, um, you make a very very important point in your in your statement here, and indeed in 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 your writing, where you say that your group says that successive Australian governments, both Labor and Coalition, also created the climate of racist, xenophobic paranoia that yeah. nurtures far right terror. And you go on to say, actually, the brutal stop the boats regime, sentencing refugees to life in offshore hellholes, the racial profiling, especially of First Nations and immigrants of African and Middle Eastern background, and, yeah. and et cetera, et cetera. So let's, because I want to talk about two more things very quickly. Sure. Um, sure. I wanted to just ask you, how can we unite to stop fascism? Oh, okay. Yeah, so... We, we need to, to stop them on the streets. So it's not a question of free speech, as we saw in Friday. No, no. It's, it's a matter of self-defense. So we need to understand it, they're going to be stopped through our own power. It's not going to be local councils. It's not going to be the police. It's not going to be the government. It's not going to be through restricting social media, which can be used against us, by yeah. the way, that those organizing against fascism. It's going to be through our own efforts. And we need to physically stop them. Every time they try to uh, spread their hate and recruit and grow, in, so when they hold public actions, when, uh, when the balance of forces permit, we need to drive them off the streets and we need to shut down their, their organizing centers and training bases. Um, that's one thing. Secondly, we need to oppose racist mainstream policies such as the incarceration of refugees and um, racist police murders and prison guard killings of Aboriginal people. So we need to oppose the official racism that creates the climate that breeds the fascists. Uh, thirdly, we need, to, we need to stand firmly against economic nationalism and we need to say, look, the reason uh, people, people don't have jobs and and not secure jobs is because of the greed of the big business owners. We need to put the blame squarely where it should be. Um, and, yeah, so I would say they're the three main things. And fourthly, we need to put our own uh, strategy forward to fight for secure jobs and for decent infrastructure, um, to channel that discontent into an internationalist, anti-racist, anti-capitalist perspective. Yes, and that that's very true, Prepper. And yeah. and indeed, um, you know, getting them off the streets, people do need to learn self-defence. There needs to yeah. be more um, yeah. self-defence programs. Yeah. For for people, and I'm not talking about that. You've got a. I'm not saying that you have to be violent. I believe in being non-violent, but uh, it's not pretty out there. Yeah, that's right, that's right. And, and there's a good example, a very positive example that occurred in, in July 2014 in Brisbane when one of the most uh, violent, extreme white supremacist groups, the Australia First Party, tried to hold a public rally there. And 200 anti-fascists uh, drove them off the streets. And the core of that rally, making up half the rally and, and the real discipline strength was a hundred construction workers from the unions who walked off, who came off from the construction sites and they, they formed a strong core. And usually the police will attack the anti-fascists, but this time, you know, they, they thought, they thought twice about attacking union contingents because that represents organization and power. So, so they, um, those unionists understood fascism is a threat to the unions, it's a threat to workers' unity, it's a threat to their coloured sisters and brothers, and they know that you can't fight for workers' rights when you have racist divisions. So they, they, they were very conscious and they knew they had to stop these fascists, and that was a great victory, and I hope we'll see more of that in the future. Look, I really hope so, and indeed we need to make the Racial Discrimination Act stronger as well, and we also need to... Um, 
make sure that when we're actually going out on the streets that elderly people and people with disabilities also need to be um, included and, and also protected because otherwise those people will be denied the opportunity to go to the protests. Oh, definitely, definitely. And, and the, the, yeah, that's a very good point because I was doing some reading recently about the Nazis and um, it's not well known that among the people who they massacred, well, started off with the communists, then, of course, the Holocaust against Jewish people, yeah. against the Roma community, against the LGBTI community, but also against disabled people. Absolutely. So they killed thousands of disabled uh, people so no one is immune you know yeah. it, it's not just it's not just muslims it's it's everybody an injury to one is an injury to all definitely and definitely. you know now sometimes i i'll have people saying to me and i'm i'm about to actually issue a language warning here to listeners um you know that people will say, "Oh, don't don't turn up to these um, protests. The fascists are just going to make asses out of themselves, and then it'll be okay. Just ignore it." What do you think? Well, well, I think I think Christchurch has really, unfortunately, yeah, blown a hole in that argument totally. Because you you know if you leave them alone, they will get stronger and stronger. That's and right. More, yeah, and aggressive and and. What, what See, what happens is when they're dealt a defeat, like they were in Brisbane in July 2014, yeah. what, it happens, what happens is those who've, who are sort of marginal in the movement or had second thoughts, they, they say, oh, this is not for me, you know. And those, those many rednecks who are not yet active fascists sitting at home watching say, okay, uh, maybe, maybe I'll just sit home and grumble about Muslims and yeah. Asians and Aboriginal people rather than going on the streets, you know. So it's a deterrent. Absolutely. But there are so many different ways of doing this. And, and look, I'm so glad that we're able to talk about the, the economic the economics yeah. of, of the situation because, you know, we've got our First Nation Party. Um, that, that'll that take a whole show to talk about the First yeah. Nation Party. Yeah. Um, yeah. And we've got our, the, the politicians um, inside Parliament, you know, that, that are encouraging this white supremacist stuff. Look, we've only got a couple of minutes. Um, yeah. What's the website that your statement is on, the statement is uh, on so that people can uh, read yeah. it? It's T-R-O-T S-K-Y I-S-T and then platform P-L-A-T-F-O-R-M dot com. The thing that the government is most afraid of is diversity. And I've invited you onto this show because I think that we need to interview everybody. We need to all unite um, and create a united front. Now, very very quickly, um, you have just come back from visiting a political prisoner and we need to... Um, do another separate interview about him. Can you just briefly talk about him? Yeah, his name is Chan Han Choi. He's been in jail since December 2017. And he's jailed because he's a socialist. He's a left-wing person. Um, he's a supporter of North Korea. He's an Australian citizen. He, he was born in South Korea, and he lived there for 30 years. He migrated to Australia 30 years ago. And he's lived here for 30 years. So he's now 60. Um, and he's been treated appallingly. He's been denied bail. And the charge that they've put on him is they've accused of breaking the United Nations sanctions on North Korea by trying to broker deals to export North Korean produce to third countries like Indonesia and Vietnam. Now, these sanctions are completely unfair. They're cruel. They, you know, they lead to suffering. And Choi has seen some of that suffering of the ordinary people. Um, they're also unfair because they used to strangle a country that does not bow down to imperialism. And today, Venezuela is under sanctions, uh, yeah. for example. Uh, but it's also unfair because they're acting, uh, it's, it's used against a socialistic country. And you could say that the sanctions are like a battering ram for privatization. Um, the U.S. and Australian government would love to privatise everything in North Korea so that they can go in 
and make a huge killing to turn the country into a sweatshop. We, so, all, we all really need to become nuclear-free, really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so to attack when these are the biggest, biggest uh, nuclear powers in the world, to say, okay, we need sanctions on North Korea because they're developing nuclear weapons, is so hypocritical. Um, so he's, he's been um, treated very badly. So to get to visit him, we had to wait five months to get clearance. Um, and we were the first visitors in five months. His own son has been denied the right to visit him. Um, he's had lawyers. His lawyers have been blocked from visiting him for, for several months. And they were recently given the right to visit. And that's now been taken away. So he we're... can't call his friends. That's disgusting. Uh, it's terrible. Yeah. Violation yeah. of human rights there. So where can we find out more about him? Yeah, so on the same website, but I encourage people also to go to YouTube because he's very courageously made some statements from prison. So type in Chan Han Choi, C-H-A-N, Han, H-A-N-C-H-O-I, and type it in, in Google or YouTube. Actually, he, the, there's three YouTube videos of him speaking from prison. And he's from New South Wales. Yeah, he's, he's at Long Bay Jail. Now, the interesting, well, the, the telling thing is he is jailed at the Long Bay Jail Prison Hospital. So this is a, this is a prison known for human rights abuses. Oh, so it is the very same prison yeah. that 26-year-old Aboriginal man, David Dungai, was murdered by racist prison guards in December 2015. Just for wanting a packet of biscuits. And yeah. we better leave it there, Preba. Um, but I'd love to have you on um, in about a month's time to um, have a bit, do a bit of an update. Okay. Thanks very much. Thanks so much. It was Richard. great talking with you. Great. Thanks a lot. Thanks. Bye. Bye. And that was Preba from Trotsky Platform um, speaking about how can we the topic, how can we reunite uh, unite against fascism and many, many other issues. It's approximately 4.56. Thank you to Lara as well for coming onto the show at the beginning from the ACTU. If you want to have a look at Alison Thorne's article from the Freedom Socialist Organiser, go to www.socialism.com. Got about a minute left before I'm out of here and we've got Beyond Zero up next. And you also heard a song by Kev Carmody called Thou Shalt Not Healed, Thou Shalt Not Steal, sorry. And also there was an announcement about the Tanya Day petition. Um, see if you can have a look at that and, and sign that. That was a, an atrocious death in custody. Um, and looking at the public drunks, drunken laws, Tanya may have been alive today. Tune in every Monday um, from 4 to 5 for the Doing Time show. And goodbye and stay safe.